the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Dooby-dooby-doo. Yes, indeedy, and welcome, welcome to this Wednesday. It is the 11th of July, and uh, you made it to the midweek. Congratulations. First full week back after the 4th of July holiday, and uh, hopefully you're enjoying the summer and some great Bay Area weather, and uh, we're going to help keep you company for the next two hours as you make your way home or wherever you might be headed with some great Bay Area conversation. We'll tell you all about what's coming up a little bit later on in the program. Right now, as we uh, head off into uh, the races here, we begin first talking a bit about a current bill making its way through the California State Legislature. It is Senate Bill 320. Now, we've we've talked about this bill in the past, and we had hoped, quite frankly, it would be killed in committee. Yeah, no such luck. It is a measure that seeks to essentially get taxpayers of California to pay for abortions through the California State University system. Isn't it enough that an individual who wishes to terminate a pregnancy in an RU486 style fashion, can go to a physician and get a prescription, can go to any clinic and do it. No, now we have to make sure that California taxpayers are paying for it by making it available through state universities. That's the California state system and the University of California system. Am I kidding you with this? No, absolutely not. To tell us more about it, Marlo Tucker, she is the director of the California chapter of Concerned Women for America. Marlo, great to have you back on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Thinking about um, CWA and many conversations that we had down through the years through uh, the organization's uh, founder, Beverly LaHaye. God bless her. I think she's about 90 now. Yes, and still going strong. Still going strong. I know that she lost uh, Tim a few years ago after nearly 70 years of marriage, but she's quite the incredible woman and has built uh, an incredible legacy through an organization that helps people be aware of what's going on so we can stay plugged in, stay active, and most importantly, fully participate in this process of self-governance through the amazing thing we have called American democracy. And I guess that really leads to a clarion call here for folks to be involved in that matter of self-governance as it comes to Senate Bill 320. Now, I kind of gave the highlights, but take us a bit deeper. And for folks that may be tuned in late or not aware of all of what Senate Bill 320 is attempting to do here in our state, give us sort of the background. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. So California Senate Bill 320 would force all 11 University of California and all 23 California State University student health centers to become essentially abortion clinics. And uh, they would be required to distribute chemical abortion, um, which ends human life up 
to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Well, why is this the business of the university educational system? I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm failing to see a connection here that somehow we're going to turn universities into clinics now to provide abortifacients. I mean, what, what, what is in the mindset? Where is the, where is the attempt by the Senate in California to try and connect the dots here? Because I quite frankly don't see it. Yes, I'm in agreement with you. And uh, quite frankly, that's the question we're asking is, is this truly part of the mission of our state institutions of higher education? Is this really necessary to pass for our uh, public universities? Well, and the other question here, too, from the financial responsibility position of this, um, we all know that a education in California is not cheap. Uh, even if yeah. you're going to a junior college. But certainly, if you've reached the level that you can attend a state university system, uh, there's some money there. And I'm also failing to see the connection of the dots between education, providing abortions, and having the taxpayers pick up the bill. I mean, listen, if if I get a cold and I need cold medication, I go down to Rite Aid or to Walgreens, whomever. I'm not doing an endorsement here. I go to the local pharmacy. I get what I need. I pay for it. End of story. Uh, other than saying we're doing this for indigent women who cannot possibly afford to pay for themselves, uh, and, 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 and clearly that doesn't describe somebody who can afford to go to a, a, a state university why does the Senate think that not only should this happen on campuses, but that somehow taxpayers ought to be responsible for paying for it? That's a very good question. And um, frankly, I don't know. It is it is unnecessary. And again, this is not the focus of uh, higher education. We should not be forcing taxpayers to pay for chemical abortions on uh, public universities. Marlo, in cases like this in the past, where we've, we've, as you and I are doing here today, raising questions for which there seem to be no logical answers, typically, historically, somewhere lurking in the shadows behind a measure like this is Planned Parenthood. Are they involved in this yet once again? Do they have a, um, a, a dog in this fight, as the saying goes? Yes, they are also a sponsor of this bill. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, Yeah, and we as Concerned Women for America are really concerned because, again, our core issue is uh, protecting uh, human life from uh, the beginning of life, which is its conception, to natural death. And this bill would provide chemical abortion pill to end human life on all campus health centers. And... um, this is an inappropriate and potentially dangerous procedure for campus health centers. And a lot of students have no idea what they are getting involved in. This is not a quick fix. This is not a morning after pill. These have serious injuries and reports of even death. And um, not even to mention the emotional side effects included in the trauma of witnessing the very early um, birth of a tiny dead baby in a dorm room or an apartment. And this can be damaging to her for years to come. And uh, this is just 
uh, outrageous. Well, and, and essentially, so that listeners understand, this is basically uh, a, a chemical abortion that takes place in the first trimester. And uh, again, understanding some folks uh, might be a little bit sensitive, especially if they're sitting down to dinner early at this time. But this essentially <laughs> is 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 forcing a miscarriage in a sense, isn't it? From a, from a clinical yes. standpoint. Yes, exactly. And a lot of uh, young college students don't understand that. Uh, they don't know that they are going to enter into something very painful and uh, permanently damaging in some cases. And uh, and frankly, the campus health centers are not really equipped to handle um, this treatment. These side effects can be very damaging and will need um, immediate surgical attention. And they're just not equipped to handle this kind of uh, procedure. Well, you're asking, so you're essentially, as I understand it, Marlo, asking what is not much more than a uh, a glorified first aid station to to yes. administer this that is ill-equipped to deal with the potential outfall or outcome of a, a, a an attempt here uh, at, at aborting that goes awry. And let's face it, any kind of medication or pill um, or administering of a drug that can essentially induce a miscarriage, which is what this does, you look at all of the attending risks to it, including bleeding out, I mean, on and on the list may go, and you're asking a glorified first aid station to handle all of this. The risk that this is putting potentially to women is enormous here, just in terms of their own health, not least of which, of course, as we know the the risk to the baby, it's fatal 100% of the time. And then we somehow are going to make the taxpayers pay for it, and we're going to drop this on the lap of, as I said before, basically glorified first aid centers at universities. It makes no sense whatsoever. And Concerned Women for America, here's these concerns from pro-lifers, and we represented uh, their voices at the Capitol last month. Uh, This bill went to a committee hearing, and women from all over California showed up from Imperial Valley to uh, San Jose, and we lined those halls, and we stated our opposition, and uh, we let those um, committee members know that we are not okay with this bill. This bill is concerning, and uh, these tactics need to stop. And in terms of getting folks to uh, to respond to this, what do we need to do to let our voice be heard in Sacramento? Oh, well, that's a great question. Actually, there is a break in Sacramento. So if um, you need to, if this touches you, please, don't sit still and hope other people are taking care of it. Your voice is very important to the legislators. And now that they're on break, they're in your district. And this is really exciting because they host events to meet their constituents. They want to know your values. They want to represent you. And so if you show up and make an appointment and it doesn't have to be intimidating, you can uh, have a friend, uh, you can have family members, have a church members come with you. Uh, get to know your uh, legislator. And in this case, it's the assembly member. This will be heard in the assembly in August. And so let them know, yes, you can represent us. You could represent our values by opposing this bill, making this stop. 
All right. Well, we urge you to certainly uh, get involved. Let your voice be heard in Sacramento. And uh, again, to contact your member of the California State Legislature, both on the Assembly and Senate side. This is Senate Bill 320, urging he or she to vote against it. Our thanks to Marlo Tucker, California Chapter Director of Concerned Women for America, for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, there have been statistics, and these are statistics I think that we all well sadly know too well, of what's happened with the divorce rate in America. Perhaps another alarming point to just how much pressure marriage is under in our nation today is the fact that growing numbers of couples aren't even bothering. By that I mean many are deciding since more than half of marriages in America today wind up in divorce court, why even bother? Just reside together. It'll make things less complicated when we decide that we're no longer fit for each other. But is that really God's design for marriage? And if your marriage is on the rocks right now and you and or your spouse have basically decided we've gone as far as we can go, let's just pull the bandage off all in one fell swoop and get it over with. Does that mean that your marriage is necessarily hopeless and destined to become just yet another statistic? My guest today on the program, I think, would suggest absolutely not, that perhaps, uh, much like when you need a major overhaul of your engine on the car or you, you need to go into the doctor and have surgery, there needs to be a radical approach, an intensive approach to getting your marriage off the rocks and back on track again. Joining me on the program, Dr. Jared Pingleton. He's Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, great to have you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Craig. My pleasure. We talk about marriage, and there's been an exciting marriage, so to speak, between um, the Ministry of Focus on the Family and another organization that you have deep ties to that really has been at the forefront of saying to couples, look, you don't have to become another statistic that as bad as it might be, as challenging as your relationship may be, there is no such thing as no hope at all. That's absolutely correct. Let's talk a bit about where we're at with statistics in America today. We talk about, on average, uh, one out of every, every two marriages ends in divorce. Are we simply taking the easy way out? Is that what this is about? Well, I'm, I'm not really sure, Craig. I know that we live in a culture that is very transitory, and, you know, we, we, we live in a throwaway society. You know, uh, we, we just don't have a good sense of what covenant is about, and we get very little uh, I think effective preaching and teaching as to what a covenant actually is. And so we have been now for about three generations into a culture that has the no-fault concept of, of divorce. And so yeah, if we're incompatible, you know, let's just uh, call it quits. And, you know, this throwaway society in which we live has unfortunately extended that to the realm of relationships. And that is absolutely antagonistic to everything that the Bible teaches. And we feel passionately about being able to understand how God is a redeemer, and not just in our heart, but in our relationships, and especially marriage here at Focus on the Family. You suggest that this is multi-generational, and you're, you're absolutely accurate on that point. And I wonder if part of the problem here is that we have multiple generations now that have never perhaps for themselves ever witnessed or experienced what a healthy, functioning marriage looks like. I mean, if, if one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, that means there's a good chance of every couple that gets together tomorrow, say, or are going to be at the altar next week, 
Uh, likely one, if not both of them, come from a family that wound up in divorce. So maybe part of the problem is we're, we're just modeling the behavior that we've experienced because we know nothing different. We, we don't know what a healthy marriage looks like. Do you think maybe that's part of the problem, too? I, I absolutely do, Craig. I think that's absolutely correct. I uh, just wrote a book called Making Magnificent Marriages, and I, I have a whole chapter to your point of this whole difficulty that we have had of not having good examples lived out in front of us. And so we have this incredible cohabitation right now among millennials in our culture. They have seen very poor marriages modeled in front of them. And so their whole idea of try before you buy to them makes sense. But the problem with that is there's no, there's no foundation of trust. It's, it's building the proverbial marital house on sand. And without commitment, without covenant, it's impossible for a relationship to endure. And, and that's why I think we need to help people understand what a healthy marriage looks like. Um, so, and, and the irony is you know, that about 40% of first marriages end in divorce. The irony is this, for people who cohabit, their breakup rate is 80%. Wow. So it's like, well, I don't want to have a failed relationship, so I'm going to double my odds of <laughs> that actually happening. And that's the incredible irony and deception that I think our culture is living under these days because uh, the vast majority of 20-somethings are either delaying marriage into their 30s or not marrying at all. They're just cohabitating. Well, you use the term covenant, and I think it's a very important one because it's a biblical one, and it is one that we have strayed from quite significantly over a number of generations, as you point out. And let's face it, if we go into a marriage or into a relationship with the idea that we're going to cohabitate to kind of take it for a test drive, both of the partners going into that relationship know deep down that at any day, the other partner could come into the door and say, you know what, I'm done. Packing my bags and I'm leaving. There's no hope. There's no sense of commitment. There's nothing there that that is a glue to hold us together. And so no wonder when we go in with, number one, the the baggage we have of our own brokenness from being products of broken relationships, there's such a level of distrust that we, we build that relationship then not on a foundation of trust and confidence and covenant, as you suggest, but rather it's built at the very get-go by making a silent statement, I don't trust you. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what a cohabitating mindset says is, hi, I love you, but I don't trust you. Will you live with me? (laughs) (laughs) And do so happily uh, ever after. (laughs) There's no basis for security. There's no basis for any sense of being able to relax. The, The whole point of sex without commitment is antagonistic to the fundamental maxim of God's universe, that without exclusivity and permanence and unconditionality, there's nothing to create security, stability, and strength in a relationship. And so there's all kinds of things then that enter into the relationship. Performance pressure, comparisons with others, and an ongoing continuous threat of fear and, um, you know, if they find somebody else, why shouldn't they just jump out and hop into relationship with that other person? So it's, uh, it, it, it has a whole bunch of fear and anxiety that's just built in. So I, I just don't recommend it at all. And we wind up settling for less than the ideal. We wind up yes. settling for a marriage that 
exists but does not thrive. And as I think you might suggest from your background, um, prior to coming on board with uh, Focus on the Family as Director of Counseling there, Dr. Pingleton was involved with the National Institute for Marriage. Would you suggest that marriages should not simply settle for getting along or second best, but in fact, under the right circumstances and, and ultimately with the right modeling and coaching, that marriages can not only survive but thrive? Is that possible? That that is absolutely correct, Craig. I, I believe that God's design for marriage is a redemptive process. Now, <clears throat> that's theological code word for saying that God delights in transforming blessing out of our brokenness. And the only way we can have that transformation take place is to get in touch with our brokenness. Mm. And so what marriage does, ironically, is it pulls the very worst out of us um, just by, by means of osmosis, as it were. We get to reap everything that everybody else in our spouse's world sowed into their heart before we showed up. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray. But, you know, marriage is the hardest thing I think there is to do well. And the research bears that out, too. And not just the divorce rates, but the marriage satisfaction rates suggest that about 5 to 12% of American marriages are mutually fulfilling. Wow, just 5%. That, yeah, 5 to 12%. And 90% of that 5 to 12% have been after 30 years or more. Mm. So marriage is hard, and yet I think it is God's plan to redeem us. Well, don't you think, uh, too, you know, that if we, if we set our sights so low, uh, we have no sense of expectation coming in. We're, we're not willing to do the hard work. Uh, we right. come into the marriage relationship, admittedly or otherwise, broken. Even if, we, even if we came from a whole home where mom and dad were together the entire time, there, there's still the influence of the outside world and, and man's innate sin nature that brings a sense of brokenness into the marriage relationship. And then we set yes. no expectations at any level for excellence at all, uh, I guess when we go into marriage like that, anticipating disappointment, we shouldn't be surprised when we get it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And yet we have all these other romanticized, idealistic expectations that come from Hollywood and Hallmark that we should live happily ever after. And that's just a, that's a romantic myth. That's a fairy tale. That's not reality. So I guess the question is, and, and I'm going to ask you to stay with us for one more segment because we need to dive deeper into this. The, the question then becomes, look, if we know and recognize that God has established the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, certainly God has, as we see throughout Scripture, high expectations for what that is. God has not designed this, as some folks might think, just to bring two people together to torture each other, but in right. fact to, to grow with one another and as they do so grow closer to each other, closer to God, and to work through all of the baggage that, as we said before, we all bring into the marriage relationship. Now, how do we, how do we learn to, to sort of um, expunge or, or, or deal with the pain and disappointment and hurt in our life to find healing, not only in our own lives, but restoration? And your marriage, even as on the rocks and hopeless as it might seem today, you might be listening to this conversation and saying, Craig, I, I understand what, what you and Dr. Pinkerton are saying, but you guys just don't understand. You've never met my wife, or you don't know my husband, or you just right. don't know the agony and the challenges that we've been through. And we've, we've talked to our pastor, and that doesn't seem to work, and, and we've read a couple of books. We maybe even went into a couple of counseling sessions, but you don't understand. It is hopeless. Is it really, or are you simply saying that you've given up on God, that your marriage is beyond God's ability to restore it? Really? 
Do you really believe that? If you do, it's okay to admit that. But I want you to stay right where you're at, because when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into, as we've acknowledged what the problem is, where's the hope in all of this? Dr. Jared Pinkleton is with us today. He's the Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We're talking about an interesting marriage, a partnership, really, between our friends at Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had a remarkable track record in bringing hope and healing and restoration to marriages, maybe even yours. Stay with us. We'll get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. We continue our visit today. Dr. Jared Pingleton is with us today. He is Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We've been talking about the state of marriage in America today, and, and, and perhaps you are one of those statistics that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're at the point where you feel as if you've tried everything that you can. Your marriage is just simply hopeless. That, of course, uh, Dr. Pingleton runs um, contrarian to God's ideal for marriage. And God certainly hasn't given up on this. This is a matter, though, of, of perhaps accurately and adequately looking at what we're, where we're at in our marriage relationship and, and what God wants to do to bring about healing and restoration both in our lives individually and then together as a couple. Absolutely. God's design and plan for marriage is something that our culture has sort of adopted to feel like, well, they're not making me happy anymore, and so I need to find someone else. And that's just totally contrary to God's plan. That is, He wants us to to grow and to heal and to restore and redeem one another. But what marriage does is exposes the depths of our selfishness. It exposes the um, the, the irony that, you know, we're hoping our love will cure the other person, and then we're disappointed when it doesn't. Uh, Craig, I'm a, as a clinical psychologist, as well as a credentialed minister, one of the ironies that I've noticed over my career for 37 years is this. Without exception, almost every couple that comes into marriage therapy does so, hoping their spouse will change. <laughs> <laughs> Always the other guy's fault, right? (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, the irony is when both of us change, whether the other one does or not, then and only then can God begin to work in each person's heart and life. Well, and you know, the irony of that is you talk about a level of frustration, doctor, because if we come into a a challenges and and a rough spot in marriage and we entirely lay the blame on the other side uh, of the marriage relationship, and I I can see in some circumstances, you know, somebody eavesdropping on our conversation right now might say, well, guys, you don't understand. My husband did this. My wife did that. And right. you may have an adequate point, but here's the challenge. You have absolutely no control over their thought process or their behavior. But I tell you what you do have control over, and that is your own. Exactly. And that empowering of the individual to take responsibility for their own marriage covenant, I think, is crucial. And it's revolutionary. When both people get that, even if just one person in the marriage gets that, the marriage system changes. Because here's what God wants for us, Craig. He wants us to realize, hey, my covenant has nothing to do with my spouse. My covenant has to do with me. And I I elaborate this real fully in in my book about marriage, is that, you know, the the self-respect that's generated when I keep my marriage covenant, because I promise to love my wife unconditionally on days that end in Y, as long as I'm breathing, no matter what she does or doesn't do. And even if I could manipulate or control her into keeping her marriage vow, I wouldn't recommend it because of two things. Number one, I would never know if she did that because I made her 
or because she wanted to. Mm. And so number two, that would actually create more insecurity for me, not, not, um, not less. It, it, it's like drinking salt water when thirsty, and that's what the culture kind of you know, emphasizes for us to do, is to try to control our mate into doing what we want them to do, to love us and respect us. And that's not what a marriage covenant is about. It is a unilateral, unconditional commitment to dedicating myself to serve my spouse in the best ways I know how with God's help. And let's face it, if we were to analyze a, a failed relationship at any level, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, between two friends or two spouses, uh, oftentimes it's this issue of the expectations we place on another. And then yeah. they don't meet those expectations. Sometimes they don't even know that we have those expectations. And then right. we feel disappointed. And then our dis- disappointment turns into bitterness. And the bitterness then gets a deep root in our heart. And before you know it, we've decided, ah, you're, you're worthless. This marriage is never going to work out. And it's very easy to give up on it simply right. because we went into it with, with an inappropriate expectation of the other person to begin with. That's right. Let's talk a bit about... ...to love us and make us happy. Exactly. Let's talk, uh, Dr. Pingleton, a bit about uh, providing hope for couples that are right where we've been discussing. Now, we've all heard the stories about the couple that uh, calls the pastor and goes in for counseling, maybe even goes in to uh, meet with a professional counselor. And uh, for the hour that they're together, there's detente, and they're able to talk civilly because there's kind of a referee in the room. And and then the Mm -hmm. minute they get back in the car and walk out the door, they're back to arguing. What is different in your experience about the approach that the National Institute of Marriage has taken? And again, I want to mention for listeners that have joined us late, there's a wonderful partnership now, a marriage really, between the Ministry of Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had an incredible success rate at bringing together marriages that are in really, really bad shape and putting them through an intensive session uh, that lasts more than just an hour. And at the end of the day, I understand that research search has demonstrated that couples that are willing to take part in in this approach, two years after they've gone through it, are still together, still married, and in fact, back on the road toward healing. What's different about the approach taken by the National Institute of Marriage? Great question, Craig. And this is what we're so excited about in at Focus on the Family is that this approach that the National Institute of Marriage does, they're located in two locations in Branson, Missouri and Rome, Georgia. They offer a very creative and unique way to help couples heal that in a, less than a week, four or five days, they can get as much progress and health and healing uh, that it, than you would take on an average of one year of outpatient psychotherapy going once a week. What they do is a very concentrated and intensive version of helping people get to the root issues of what's going on in their marriage or what's not going on in their marriage that they want to. And they help each individual change, whether their spouse does or not. And the, the exciting thing about it is many of those couples are hanging by a thread. They've already filed the divorce papers, you know, if, if it doesn't work to, to be activated on Monday when they get home. And this is a last resort, desperation kind of thing. But, but what they do um, and have for about 10 years at the National Institute of Marriage, and, and we're so excited that now Focus on the Family is, has joined with them and they with us, is this. They ask each individual, if God were to give you a miracle in your marriage, would you be willing to accept it? Hmm. And 
it's so awesome to see how God shows up every single week at, at those intensives where couples deal with issues that they feel absolutely hopeless and helpless about, and yet they, they see the change that takes place in themselves and in their spouse. And the miracle stories that happen there are just awesome. They are just amazing to see how God has restored and redeemed and reconciled hurting couples. And and this intensive time, it takes them away from the normal day-to-day environment, because let's face it, it's, it's hard to be at the office all day long or be a stay-at-home parent all day long and then go to a counseling session and then come back and you're you're right back in the same environment. And sometimes just getting away in a, in a change of pace and a change of environment can help to clarify your thinking, deepen your understanding, and, and give yes. you kind of the space that you need. Isn't it true? Give, give them kind of Absolutely. the space that they need and, to be able to work through these issues. Yes, and, and this intensive therapeutic format enables the couple to go deep. Because when you're starting to get into some deep pain and, you know, 45 minutes or 50 minutes is up, you have to sort of research the wound that you've surgically incised in, and opened up that, that uh, pain and, and put duct tape and bailing wire on it basically till next week. And what this opportunity affords is, yes, to get away in a beautiful resort-like setting that's free from distraction and very relaxing and peaceful, but yet that opportunity to work concentratedly, intensively, without distraction, without other responsibilities or obligations. They do about eight hours of therapy every day, and then in the evenings there are directed um, learning exercises and interaction kinds of opportunities that each couple can participate in as well so that they can really, really focus exclusively and intensively on their marriage. And it, that investment works. Well, and you know, put this in perspective, we bring oftentimes uh, a whole childhood, a young adult life of pain yes. and disappointment and the lack of, of appropriate uh, healthy marriage modeling if we're coming from a an abusive home or a broken home. And then we go into a marriage relationship and, and we've got two broken people together now that are all of a sudden helping to break each other even more so, sometimes wouldn't right. we, sometimes not so. And so there's a lifetime of this hurt and disappointment and failed expectations that have accumulated. And so to say get away for two or three days, and let's try to put a Band-Aid on that. And, and I like your analogy. It, it, it's a lot like having heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. Yes. If the doctor said, gee, I've got a golf game in 45 minutes, so we'll start today, then we'll search you up, then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll we'll continue. And it might take me a week or so, but we'll finally get through it all. Well, you, you know what kind of pain and, and condition that patient would be in. So here's an intensive opportunity to work start to finish through the issues, through the pain, through the bitterness, through the disappointment. And at the end of this experience, I understand, uh, Dr. Pinkerton, that that better than 85% of people walk away with a pretty significant breakthrough, don't they? Well, they do. And and what the research shows that uh, they have done over the years is that after therapy, two years later, that 85% of those couples are still together that came to their anticipating divorce. So they have the best results in terms of success rates clinically of any program or any counseling kind of uh, intervention or model or modality in the country. All right. With that sense of perspective and hope, I, I trust you've heard something in our conversation today with Dr. Jared Pingleton that has said to you, okay, we still have another option here. And I want to urge you, hop on the Internet. 
and go to nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com, and just get some more information. There are these intense retreats and conferences taking place all over the country, and you can go to the website to get more information. And uh, taking that first step, Dr. Pingleton, is oftentimes the, the, the step in the right direction that can ultimately ble- lead to hope and restoration of a marriage. Absolutely. So again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And we're so delighted to see this marriage, really this partnership between Focus on the Family and the Ministry of National Marriage. And here now is an opportunity for you to find hope and healing and restoration of your own marriage. Again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. And our thanks to Dr. Jared Pingleton, Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, thanks again for the time and the insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as a guest, Craig. God bless you all. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, the topic in this segment of the show is not a pleasant one. It's not an easy one to deal with. It's one that, frankly, I think most of us would rather avoid. And yet it is a normative part of life. And I guess that at the forefront needs to be something we all need to be reminded of. And that is as much as we we celebrate events in life, weddings, the birth of a new child. We celebrate new beginnings. Um, There's not much celebration, though, that comes to the end of events. We don't celebrate when a marriage ends. We certainly don't have cause to celebrate when a life ends. Although, certainly from a Christian perspective, we understand, you know, as Paul said, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet that grieving process is not so much for the loved one who's gone on to their reward. They've run the good race. They've, they've finished the race. They've crossed that finish line. And, and uh, now they go on to their reward. And that we grieve for ourselves because of the sense of loss that we feel, the presence of that special someone in our life that is suddenly gone from us. Certainly the impressions that they made on us, the influence that they had in our lives, that's something you never lose. And maybe that's another thing that we need to be mindful of as we begin our conversation tonight, that there is much hope to be found, particularly for the Christian, during times of loss and grief. The title, Finding Hope in Times of Grief, uh, uniquely set to this new book tonight as we talk about this topic of how to go about um, dealing with loss in life and where to turn when a loved one passes. Joining me on the program, uniquely qualified to address this topic, a couple who, um, inside of one week, lost both a father and a son. And Preston and Glenda Parrish, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the show tonight. Hey, Craig, it's great to be with you tonight. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, Preston, let me start with you. Kind of set up, if you would, the scenario for our listeners. Uh, You know, it's never easy to be sure... When you lose a loved one, more difficult still when that loved one is a parent. Um, in your case, though, it was sort of a double whammy within one week, wasn't it? Well, it was, and I so appreciated your opening comments. We all do love to celebrate the blessings that come to us in life, the happy occasions. And, of course, we live in a society that likes to dwell on those things to the exclusive of the other part of reality, namely that we live in a world that's fallen, a world that's out of order, and in fact a world where one out of every one person does die, where difficult events happen, such as we've seen in Japan most recently. And the fact is that we really do have to be prepared to take not just the happy times, but also the difficult times, and to deal with those. Uh, from the standpoint of a a rock-solid foundation. Uh, 
consequence of doing that was driven home for us five years ago as in the same week, as you mentioned, my aged and ailing father died, but then also just the day after we buried my father, our 25-year-old son, Nathan, a uh, college graduate, uh, an instructor at a science camp there in California, uh, he died in a rock climbing accident. And we had been anticipating my father's death. He was approaching 80. He had been in declining health for some time. He did love the Lord. We were very close. At the same time, though, his death was certainly something that I, in particular, uh, grieved. Uh, he would not be here with me in this world anymore, and I would greatly miss him. And in the process of beginning to sort through living beyond his presence, just within 24 hours or so is exactly when the telephone call came from a sheriff's deputy there in California telling us about our son's rock climbing fall. And at that point, even though we, my wife Linda and I, had been involved in ministry for many years, we had certainly dealt with lots of situations of tragedy in other people's lives and some in our own. At that point, we were plunged into an experience of grief like we had never before known that required us to cling to Christ as never before, and that now, as we have walked day by day beyond this experience, uh, has resulted in us in experiencing God's faithfulness and God's care in ways we had never known before. The irony, Glenda, I think behind all of this is, even though we give cognizant um, acknowledgement that Death is a part of life. As unpleasant as that may be, as distasteful as that may be, it's something that we all recognize. You know, the, the seed falls to the ground and dies. There, There is, you know, to man appointed once to die and then the judgment. We know that this is part of life, and it's a normative part of life. And yet, in spite of that cognizant reasoning uh, or giving mental assent to that notion, this yet remains a topic that we still struggle with. It really does, and I think that um, before Nathan went to heaven, I felt I knew exactly what it was like for somebody that was grieving, but when it actually happened, I realized that I knew nothing, and it is quite a journey. It's very complex, and um, we experienced it just like anybody else would that that goes through it, and had some very tough days, but at the same time, because we had faith in Jesus Christ, we saw God everywhere, and we um, he helped us get through it, and we just felt like we needed to write the book to help people that were walking this road know that God sees them, that he knows everything they think about, that he sees every tear they shed, and that he will walk with them. Was there a moment early on in this experience, Preston, and and we should, for the benefit of our listeners, um, let folks know that uh, you're you're not just kind of a casual believer here. Um, You've you've walked with Christ for many, many years. (coughs) You've served in key leadership roles with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, Yourself, Glenda, you've been a Bible teacher. You've been a writer of Bible study curriculum. Um, So knowledge of the Scripture, things of this sort, is certainly... uh, topic to which neither of you are strangers. And yet as much as this thing came upon you, uh, losing both your dad and a son inside of one week, was there that moment of what's going on here? God, why are you allowing this? Lord, where have you gone? Well, the, the why question certainly does come up, but a few days 
after these events happened so close together, I was indeed pondering them and trying to make some sort of sense out of them. And what dawned on me is that those whose well-being depends on figuring everything out and understanding everything will not be well this side of heaven because right now we do see through a glass darkly. We see as in a mirror dimly. We don't understand a lot of things. But the fact is we don't have to understand everything to be well in Jesus Christ. When we cling to Jesus, we experience that Jesus is enough. In fact, he's more than enough, and he is the only one who's enough. And by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in faith, in our darkest hours, then even our darkest hours can be occasions when we see God uh, and the light of his love shining through to us faithfully. They can also be occasions when others are helped by how we go through those difficulties in a way that they might not be helped by how we live when the sun is shining and the birds are singing. Um, you have other children? We do. We have a uh, a daughter uh, who's married and has three children of her own now. We have an older son who is, uh, who's 19 months older than Nathan was. Uh, and then our youngest child is uh, 17 and uh, a junior in high school. So we have four children. And that in itself has been a part of our experience of walking through grief. We have experienced, as many listeners would have who have had a similar experience, that people who haven't had a loved one, especially a child, I don't quite understand the dynamic. Uh, some people say, well, at least you've got three more. Well, the fact is, uh, three more here with you do not take the place of the one who is now absent from you. Each one is special in their own way. And just as our Lord told about the shepherd who, when he had a hundred sheep and 99 were with him and one was missing, and he went after the one missing one. So, no matter how many children we have, we we miss the one who is not with us. And, of course, added then to the complexity of all this is not only dealing with the grief and the why questions, but also helping your children go through the process of losing a sibling. That's very true, and every person grieves differently. People that are grieving right now realize that, but children grieve um, differently when they lose a brother. And we have seen it in three different ways. One child walked through it with us and was very expressive. One has been very quiet about it and is probably still working through it. And then Jessie Ruth was just 12 years old when it happened, and her grief um, in some part came quickly, but the biggest part of it did not come for years down the road. And so all of them did grieve differently. Let's pause for a moment. When we come back to more of our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish, we'll talk about some of the different methodology that goes in this process of grieving. As Glenda points out, we all have different ways of approaching it, and there's, in many cases, not just one right answer. How do you go about figuring out for yourself what that process is, what it ought to look like? How do you come out on the other side of this loss and grief um, successfully so? We'll talk more with Preston and Glenda Parrish, a look at finding hope in times of grief, as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.